Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this pre-recorded broadcast of Shooting from the Hip. I'm your host, Mark Avery, from Sim Trainer, the Dayton area's first indoor range and firearms training center. You can visit us on the web at sim-trainer.com. You can call us at the range at area code 937-293-3914 or stop down and see us. Our range is located at 2031 Dryden Road, right across from the AES Ohio Power Company Maintenance Yard. We'd be glad to discuss with you any of your firearms needs and interest. As I mentioned, this is a pre-recorded show, so I obviously can't take calls today. You can still reach me by going to our website at sim-trainer.com and clicking on the contact tab to open the form and send an email. If you have an immediate question, the range is open until the show is over. You can call there directly at 937-293-3914, and the staff member on duty will do his or her best to answer your question. If uh, they don't have an answer for you, I'll answer as soon as practical because they will forward that to me, or you can, again, send it directly to me through the contact tab. Normally, at this time, I try to go over some of the things that are happening at the range and give you some idea of the opportunities for training and act and recreation activities, but I'm going to skip that today because it has been a very busy week with respect to the Second Amendment and firearms in general and a lot of other uh, related issues. Uh, one of the first things that happened was on the 20th, on Monday, a group of 50 members of Congress sent a letter to the White House talking about a, a topic we discussed last week on this show. The Army gave direction to the Lake City Ammunition Plant to no longer make available excess production for civilian use. Now, the Lake City Ammunition Plant produces much of the ammunition that is used by the military, but it also produces a significant uh, a number of uh, rounds above what the military requires. And that part of the reason for that is to maintain a capability to surge and provide more ammunition uh, should there be an, an added requirement for it. So uh, when the Army told the Lake City Ammunition Plant that they could no longer sell that ammunition in the commercial market, that created quite a stir. Uh, they contacted the National Shooting Sports Foundation. National Shooting Sports Foundation uh, put out notice to a, a lot of other people, including uh, all the, the shops. Basically, what that would do was cut 30% of the ammunition production for modern sporting rifles that uh, in the 223/5.56 NATO caliber which is the most common caliber used in these rifles and uh, the army's direction to uh, not allow that to be sold commercially would have been a significant problem for the gun owning community as well as uh, potentially for the Lake City ammunition plant they may have to close down some of their functions anyway on Monday, these 50 members of Congress sent a letter to the White House saying that they, uh, in, in closing, urge you to immediately end consideration of this action, which we view as a backdoor attempt to bypass Congress and ban legal and highly popular commercial ammunition and certain semi-automatic rifles used by law-abiding Americans across the country. And it was uh, initially by... Uh, uh, member of Congress, Vicki Hartzler, uh, a Republican member of Congress, but it was signed by 50 members of Congress. Now that, I, I didn't print the entire list of 50 because that actually is longer than the letter itself. 
uh, all those signature blocks. But if you'd like to uh, read that letter, uh, you're welcome to do that. You can. Uh, it's it's been posted in several different places, but uh, you will find it, you will also find it on uh, the reload. Uh, that's where I initially found it, and then uh, there was th their link was bad. I added a a note a comment at the bottom with the correct link, uh, but there are several other places that you can get that letter as well. In short, uh, the Biden administration tried to uh, float a trial balloon to see just how well this would work. It got completely shot out of the air, and now they're denying that they ever attempted to do this. So even though uh, we have the information from Lake City that said that they, in fact, did receive this, they went to Winchester, they went to the uh, National Shooting Sports Foundation with that information to try to get it turned around. Uh, it got turned around very quickly, and now the Biden administration is denying that they ever attempted to do this, and there's and they have uh, stated that there will no longer be any attempt. Or well, they haven't said no longer because that would admit that they actually did it. They said there is no attempt to um, limit the commercial sale of the overrun ammunition from Lake City. So that's a good thing. Uh, it's one more situation where. The you, it's hard to know exactly what you can trust coming out of the White House press briefing room, uh, but the at least for right now it sounds like that will not be done. So that's kind of an update from what we talked about last week that I think is good news. So what else has happened this week? Well, there is a a, a group of uh, senators who have come up with what they call the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Now, I read through this act. Uh, it's 80 pages or so. It is uh, kind of short by congressional standards, but um, and it hasn't been introduced yet, so it doesn't even have a bill number. It's a Senate bill. It would be a Senate bill, uh, but they have come to an agreement, they being these, uh, these senators, these 20-some senators, and then it went out to a vote, and there was, in fact, more uh, uh, there were more than enough Republican senators who voted to uh, allow this bill into consideration. So uh, although it doesn't yet have, uh, it, or at least as the version that I have did not yet have a bill number, it looks like it's going to be at least addressed and considered. We'll see how much discussion it gets because there's a lot of other things that are currently going on in politics. Uh, if you haven't heard of some of those, I'm not even going to try to address them. They're not related to firearms uh, and the uh, and gun control, but uh, we'll we'll let the the rest of the media take care of some of those other issues. Um, but I wanted to talk about some of the things that are in this bill. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I read through the bill. I haven't I haven't read the whole thing. I haven't studied it in detail, but I did go all the way through it. And there's here's some of the highlights of some of the things that I found that it adds. Uh, it adds screening of juvenile records to NICS when determining whether to deny a firearm transfer, and it gives NICS up to 10 days if they find something that provide that, that they say provides cause for further investigation. Uh, now, one thing about it is that it does have a 10-year sunset, so much like the original assault weapons ban, it will have to be reenacted in 10 years, in 2032, if uh, even if it does get passed. So it's not something that is a permanent change to the way things operate. Uh, that NICS change to allow access to juvenile records is significant, and that's for uh, people 
ages 18, adults ages 18 to 20 who are looking to purchase a long gun. So it adds several additional uh, gates that have to be cleared. So it will probably delay the firearm transfer for people under 21 years old trying to purchase a long gun, which is currently legal in most places, certainly federally legal. And uh, that it, 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 it might, the idea, I'm sure the idea behind it was trying to say, well, we've got some of these kids who have sealed juvenile records, but they've had problems and we've we've not caught that. And so as a result, we're going to open those records and include anything uh, from those records that should be added to NICS to say this person should be denied purchasing a firearm. That opens a pretty wide door because the reason that juvenile records are sealed is because they are they were happened before these people were adults. Now, one can argue whether uh, actions by especially older juveniles, 16, 17-year-olds, uh, much of that which might be in, in a gang activity or uh, they're acting really as adults, uh, and whether that should be included, it does include those. So it'll be interesting to see just how that gets affected should this bill actually go into effect. Uh, it also uh, adds, an, which I think is a good thing, an annual review to remove outdated NICS records. So one of the problems is that a lot of people who go to purchase a firearm, every time they purchase a firearm, they run through the NICS checks, they always get delayed. After that three-day review, they're able to purchase the firearm. It sometimes comes back sooner than that when they realize that it's not the same person or whatever it was that was in there, no longer applicable. Uh, whatever the case is, there are several people that once you've been denied, you'll probably always get, or once you've been delayed, you'll probably always get delayed. And that's just an inconvenience for purchasing a firearm. One of the reasons why people who fall in that category may want to keep their concealed handgun license, because at least you can go to a gun shop that recognizes the concealed handgun license as a sufficient background check. You still fill out the paperwork, but then you don't have to worry about what Nix has to say about it. You don't get the delay. You just go ahead and able to purchase your firearm and go home because you're legally allowed to. One of the other things that this bill adds is something they call the Extreme Risk Protection Order language, uh, also known as red flag provisions. And it would not be implemented federally, but it would be funded federally for state implementation. So they're saying... You know, states go out there and experiment with these extreme risk protection orders. Let's uh, let's find the best way to do that, supposedly. Um, but one of the things that they include, and I think this is a good provision, they must include pre-deprivation and post-deprivation due process rights that prevent any violation or infringement of the Constitution of the United States, including, but not limited to, and I'll skip some of the words, but basically the, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment uh, to the Constitution would be protected so that your your right to due process would be preserved. And unfortunately, many of the red flag laws that had already been implemented by states do not um, allow the person who's affected to have any say or even know about the fact that the the process went on. So this would say that they would fund states being able to implement these new extreme risk protection orders or red flag provisions. Uh, they don't ever use the term red flag in the bill, but that's what they are. And then it would 
uh, it would allow the this it would help fund that activity by the states. It would not create a federal extreme risk protection order. I don't know if you may have heard that that's the way it was. It'd be easily could easily be misrepresented or mischaracterized that way. Um, so uh, if there's going to be a way to do it, this would be one way that would be less uh, dangerous, in my opinion. At least it's being handled at the state level. It also adds terrorism penalties to straw purchases with penalties up to 25 years in prison for someone who purchases a firearm knowingly, purchases it to give it to someone who is a prohibited person, and then that firearm is intended to be used in some sort of terrorist activity, much like the, some of the things that we've seen recently. Uh, it also covers smuggling of firearms out of the United States, which is one of the anti-gun crowd's pet rocks. They think that firearms, you know, that, that the reason there are uh, problems with firearms in other countries is because the United States has liberty and allows people to purchase firearms, and therefore that makes guns easily accessible. And so they easily smuggled out. Now, this, the smuggling part is already illegal, so now they're going to make it more illegal. And smugglers aren't going to pay attention to that because they're they already it's already illegal. So they're going to simply continue to do what's illegal because they don't care whether it's legal or not. It's part of what they intend to do. Um, one of the other things it does is it prohibits. <laughs> I almost I, I can't do this with a straight face. It prohibits the transfer of firearms and ammunition to drug cartels. So when is the most recent time that we've heard people purchasing firearms on behalf of drug cartels? It goes back a little ways. It goes back to the Obama administration in a program called Fast and Furious. When the firearms were allowed to be left, they were, it, was, it was an activity by the ATF. People were purchasing these firearms and straw purchases, giving them to the Mexican uh, drug cartels. And supposedly these firearms were supposed to be tracked, but they weren't tracked. And so some of those guns then were used and, uh, and, and then used against the U.S. Border Patrol and the DEA in trying to enforce the drug rules. So here we go. We're going to prohibit the, the transfer of firearms and ammunition to drug cartels in a law when the, when the federal government has already done that. I need to take my first break for the hour. Um, I'll be back shortly. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's our Ask the Expert weekend on the Miami Valley radio station with breaking news, weather, and traffic. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Mark Avery, for Shooting from the Hip. Glad that you've joined me this Saturday afternoon for this pre-recorded edition. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that was uh, released, or at least the text of it was released uh, earlier in, on the about the 21st, in the evening of the 20th, or uh, over the evening of the 20th and the 21st uh, of of June, this uh, the the text of this bill was released and made available for people to read. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I have read through the bill, and these are my comments. These are the, my takeaways from it. There's a lot of other uh, people who have done information and probably more qualified to do that because, uh, well, because they're attorneys and I'm not. 
But uh, this is my take on some of the things that I read in the bill. And there's a few more things I want to include. Uh, but I would also encourage you to go out to thereload.com and bearingarms.com because there are several good articles there. There are many other locations that have them as well. Truth About Guns and um, there's, there's several other websites. So if you have a favorite uh, firearms and Second Amendment website, I'm sure that they've addressed the issue in some, in some way. So uh, feel free to, uh, to, to get more comments from there. But this is my, my quick update based on a, a review of about 80 pages of it. Uh, one of the things that it does is it, uh, it and I think this, is, this may be a good thing, it allows, um, it provides FFLs, importers and manufacturers, the ability to determine whether a firearm offered for sales or transfer has been stolen. And it's using information that would, that from the National Crime Information Center database. So that's something we don't currently have access to right now. When we do a transfer, somebody brings a gun in, they want to transfer it to someone else, or somebody wants to purchase a gun from somebody, there's no real easy way to determine whether or not that gun had been stolen. Uh, this isn't in, in now in the state of Ohio, there is a database that allows you to check to see if a gun has been re reported stolen in the state of Ohio. But that's not a complete list because obviously guns get stolen in other places. It's a good first step. And uh, I commend Dave Yost for putting that database out there. But uh, this would allow you to check for any firearm, and if it's anywhere in the NCIC database, that would show up. So that would be a good quick way to avoid uh, purchasing a stolen firearm unknowingly. Um, the, uh, the bill would also allow FFLs to conduct NICS checks for employment background checks, and there would be no charge by the Attorney General for that to the FFL. Uh, notice and consent by the prospective or current employee would be required in writing prior to being able to do this. So it, there'd be interesting to see how that gets implemented if it does. Uh, it, there would almost certainly be a charge by the FFL because we'd have to maintain records of those of those background checks. It takes us time to do that. So there would be a charge probably similar to the charge of a transfer of a firearm to run that background check. But if, if uh, an employer wanted to get a NICS check on someone, that would be in addition to something like the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, Ohio BCI background check that most people get uh, at employment. So that's, uh, that's an interesting provision that gets added. It adds a, a five-year limit to the prohibition replacing the current lifetime ban for a misdemeanor, misdemeanor charge of domestic violence. And I think that might be a good thing. We'll see if that actually stays. It also expands what is considered domestic violence and it includes dating relationships, tries to define what dating relationships are. That's a little tough. Um, it does include school safety recommendations through schoolsafety.gov and requires, quote, evidence-based school safety measures. Wow. I mean, we could do a whole month of shows on that topic alone. Uh, I have done a show with uh, the folks from Faster Saves Lives, and, and we will run that show again at some point, but uh, that was just a few weeks ago. Evidence-based actions, if, if we could actually have the federal government use evidence-based actions, I think what would have happened over the last couple of years with COVID would have been very different. We weren't using evidence-based. We were using politics, determining what was so-called science, and eliminating anything that disagreed with the current uh, version of, of, of reality. 
and if that's the same kind of evidence-based measures that they plan to use for school safety, um, then that's a problem. And proving that skepticism, the bill also adds this provision to the prohibited use of funds for the provision of any person uh, to to any person of a dangerous weapon, as defined in the U.S. Code, or the training in the use of a dangerous weapon with respect to the school safety. So we've already seen that the evidence says if you have a firearm on campus in the hands of a person who is trained and willing to take the action that's necessary to stop the threat, that stops it fastest. That's the best way to protect once something has already occurred. Now, granted, there are many other school safety provisions, hardening the facility, restricting access, making sure that only authorized personnel can get into the facility. All of those things are good. They need to be done. But to eliminate the funding of using federal funds as a possibility for conducting training, I think that kind of goes back. It just says, well, we're really not talking about evidence-based as much as we could. I'm running along. I need to take a break and go into the news. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's our Ask the Expert weekend on the Miami Valley radio station with breaking news, weather, and traffic. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to the show. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip. If you're new to the show, please go to our website at sim-trainer.com slash radio. Find out more about the show and the things that we've done. You'll also find the some of the more recent shows linked there right on that page, plus a link to the entire list of shows that are available in the podcast. You can also subscribe that podcast. You can hook up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter's probably, most of that's going to come from Facebook anyway, so uh, they, they are linked together. Uh, but you can you can uh, get hooked up with the things that are going on at Sim Trainer at uh, that page as well. And that, that whole website, sim-trainer.com, contains a lot of information about the programs that we have available. And if you're interested in getting firearms training, uh, that's the best uh, place for you to go to get resources. I'm not going to talk any more about uh, which classes we have upcoming. I've talked about those in previous shows and got too much more to cover about things that went on just in this uh, very recently. So let's leave uh, the the bipartisan, bi- excuse me, bipartisan Safer Communities Act and jump into the Supreme Court. Now, as I mentioned uh, in a previous show, the the Supreme Court had been considering the case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association uh, v. Bruin, who is the superintendent of New York State Police. And the idea of the case, or the, the, the central issue around the case, was whether the Sullivan Law, the New York's version of concealed carry in a May-issue environment, was constitutional. Uh, did they have provisions that allowed... Uh, people to exercise the rights guaranteed by the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, which, if you're not as familiar with it as as you might be, uh, 27 words that just spell out a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And really, it goes to the and bear portion of that statement because 
um, in, in fact, in New York, you can't even keep arms until you've been a resident for at least six months, and then you get a permit to possess a firearm in your own residence. Uh, that doesn't allow you to carry or go anywhere with it, but it just allows you to have it. And then uh, the question of whether or not you wanted to get a permit to carry, you could get several different types. You could get one that allows a restricted permit that allows you to transfer that firearm from your residence uh, to a range for shooting and recreation. Uh, it allows you to use it for hunting, but that's all. If you want to carry on your person for self-defense, that requires an unrestricted license. And there's a separate one for New York City uh, that is in addition to whatever you would have for the state. So if you live outside of New York City and you get a permit, it doesn't necessarily mean it will work and be uh, recognized in the city of New York itself. So those are some of the kinds of restrictions that New Yorkers have had to put up with. And the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association brought this case. Uh, it was um, it, it was basically argued uh, back in November on uh, November third, and the, uh, the 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 Supreme Court has then since been considering and putting this decision together. We were wondering uh, whether it would be released on Tuesday with the first batch. Uh, it was released on uh, on Thursday, the twenty third of June. And that was the big decision that was released that day. And has since there have been a, a other decisions that have been released that have taken all the wind out of the room, sucked up all the oxygen. So you may not hear as much about this case as you would uh, some of the one of the others that um, was released that I don't really care to talk about on this show because it's not related to fi uh, firearms issues or the Second Amendment. So basically what happened with this uh, is that the, the there were several uh, testimonies and and people that brought uh, that brought uh, Amici um, friend of the court briefs to argue one side or the other. Uh, the anti-gun crowd has been saying all along that uh, you're not restricting anyone's uh, Second Amendment rights. You're not infringing the right to keep and bear arms by having a May issue system, as long as there's some way for them to possess them. And in fact, uh, that that is that even only goes back to the Heller decision when the court made uh, the case uh, basically stated that the right to keep in and bear arms was, in fact, an individual right not related to anything having to do with a militia. And then, so this case was talking about whether or not uh, the and bear part meant you could carry it outside the home. So the the Heller case only, and then the, the McDonald case that extended that to all the states uh, through the 14th Amendment, uh, that was those those decisions basically talked about possession of a firearm in the home in a condition where it could be used for in defense and rather than disassembled or uh, with locks on it and and unavailable for use. So uh, with the, with this case then was to say whether or not you'd actually be able to have a right to bear arms. And if that right to bear arms was something that could be arbitrarily uh, limited by a an, a, uh, an issuing authority who says, yes, you may, yes, you've met all the qualifications, but we don't think you should be able to carry that firearm, and therefore we will not give you a permit. And that is the case in six states, including New York. Uh, there are several others, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, California, and some others. 
so that was the that was the central tenet of the case that was brought. And the question then was, would the Supreme Court say that and bear arms means that you can, in fact, that you must, in fact, be able to be granted a license to carry or that you must be able to carry in some way and that it can't be unduly burdened by the issuing authorities. The way that the New York burdened it is by each person having to show good cause for why they needed a firearm to uh, to be carried rather than uh, just using it for hunting. So uh, they also would automatically uh, exclude the, say, I just want to carry a firearm for self-defense because I know that I live in a dangerous area or I know that uh, there are there are crimes that are being committed in the city. That wasn't sufficient cause. They, you had to have a very specific threat that you were trying to protect against in order to be able to get a license in most cases. Now, in the, in the city of New York, you could also get a license if you were famous or wealthy and popular or, you know, if you had a high profile, then that would be sufficient to get that, that cause, uh, to get past that, that issue of cause. And it was very subjective. There was no very specific way that you could uh, put together a case that would allow you to be able to get a concealed handgun permit that would allow you to carry unrestricted. So what did the Supreme Court say about that? First, they, there, were, there were many arguments. They basically took down each of the arguments that were made uh, based on uh, previous statu- um, statutes on uh, common law offenses, uh, going back even into uh, way back into history in English common law. And the, in, in summary, the historical evidence from uh, the pre-war America demonstrates that a manner of public carry was subject to reasonable regulations, but none of these limitations on the right to bear arms um, operated to prevent law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying arms in public for that purpose. And that's, uh, I'm, I'm reading from the, the slip decision. So because of that, then uh, the, the, final, uh, the final decision was that the constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than other Bill of Rights guarantees, uh, quoting from the McDonald decision. And the exercise of the constitutional right does not require individuals to demonstrate to government officers some special need. The Second Amendment right to carry arms in public for self-defense is no different. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. In short, they completely eviscerated New York's may-issue carry system. Now the question then becomes, how is that going to affect the other states that have may-issue carry uh, provisions? And will will they all just start uh, wiping them out and replacing them? Now, when the McDonald decision uh, was, was uh, released, the state of Illinois went from there is no carry possible, which was their original uh, carry law. There was no way to get a license to carry a concealed handgun, in the state of Illinois, you could get, you had to get a firearms owner ID card, but there was no way to get a license to carry at all. 
and they went from no carry to shall issue carry in one change of the law. And that was a little bit of a surprise. A lot of people thought when Illinois implemented the provisions in their law to comply with the, the, the McDonald decision, which was based on a Chicago case, they very many people expected that they would go with as small an increase in liberty as possible. And in fact, they went all the way to a shall issue system. Now it's expensive, costs $150 to get an in-state license, or if you're an out-of-state and you need to carry in the state of Illinois, it's double that. Plus you have to get training in the state of Illinois. So there's a lot of barriers there, but it is then possible for anyone who chooses to go through all of those wickets to get a license in the state of Illinois. In the state of New York, it doesn't matter what wickets you clear, there's no definitive way that you can get a license in the state of New York. Even if you clear everything they tell you to do, they can still tell you, no, you can't have it. And this decision says that doesn't work. That violates the Constitution. Now, as you can imagine, <laughs> not everyone on the court agreed. So there was, in fact, a, um, there was a, there was, it was a 6-3 decision. And the dissent was pretty strong They, in the sense that they had uh, a lot of arguments that they used. But most of the arguments that were used were things that, that were not really related to the direct uh, part of the of the issues that were presented to the court. They were things that happened around, like the shootings. They're saying, well, we've got these so many shootings, we can't uh, eliminate that provision for a good cause because that's bad. And Justice Alito had <laughs> some very strong words about the dissent written by Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer also dissented in the Heller case and it's not then surprising that he would think this case should also that should, was also being decided wrongly by the court. But the cases and the arguments that he brings, in particular, the one of them is why does he think it's relevant to recount the mass shootings that have occurred in recent years, particularly when some of those have occurred in New York and Justice Alito mentions the shooting that took place in Buffalo and says the New York law here obviously did not stop that perpetrator. So based on that, what is the what is the purpose of the dissent? How is what you're saying going to make anyone safer? Because we're you're not going to uh, allow pe the the government to make arbitrary decisions on who is or who is not allowed to carry a firearm. I'll get more into this after the break. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip on a pre-recorded edition on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's our Ask the Expert weekend on the Miami Valley Radio Station with breaking news, weather, and traffic. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to the show. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip. And I just have a few more minutes in this pre-recorded edition. We were talking about the, the Supreme Court case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, that was decided on the 23rd. And it has basically taken out the May issue permitting system as a, a viable constitutional method 
to for states to control who carries firearms on their person. Uh, there was a dissent by Justice uh, Breyer, and Justice Alito took that dissent apart in his concurring opinion. Uh, and in closing that opinion, he says, Today, unfortunately, many Americans have good reason to fear they will be victimized if they are unable to protect themselves. And today, no less than in 1791, the Second Amendment guarantees their right to do so. Uh, that That's pretty strong words and, and ones that I think the Second Amendment community isn't surprised to hear in the sense that uh, it's not news to them, but it is uh, it is good to hear that coming from the Supreme Court. There were a couple other concurring opinions as well. Justice Kavanaugh, uh, uh, the, the Chief Justice, wrote a concurring opinion that want, made a couple of points about the limits of the decision, saying it doesn't prohibit states from imposing licensing requirements, just that they can't use the May issue approach to do that. Uh, if the 43 states that employ objectives shall issue licensing regimes for carrying handguns for self-defense may continue to do so. And then second, as Heller and McDonald established and the court again explains the Second Amendment is, quote, neither a regulatory straitjacket nor a regulatory blank check. Uh, so he he ended, goes along with the basic facts that it is, as has been uh, stated formerly, that it, it's that there are some reasonable kinds of restrictions that could be placed that would not constitute in, infringements. Um, we can argue about that. That's the Chief Justice's opinion, and uh, it's. I'm not really going to to get into that in in much depth. But I do want to talk a little bit, very briefly, as I start to run out of time here, um, on the concurring opinion by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and she joins the court's opinion in full and writes separately to highlight two points that the court doesn't resolve. It doesn't conclusively determine the manner and circumstances in which the uh, things that happened after the ratification of the Second Amendment could be brought in. Um, she thinks that there was far too much argument about things that happened after the Second Amendment was ratified, things that happened uh, around the time of the Civil War and the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And then she also said the court avoids uh, ongoing scholarly debate as to whether courts should primarily rely on the current understanding of an individual right when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 or when the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. And the lack of the support for New York's law in either period means that they didn't have to address that question, but it seems that she thinks it should be addressed. And she falls apparently on the the um, against giving post-enactment history more weight than it can rightly bear. So going forward, I, I think it's likely that we'll see that Second Amendment challenges that bring current events into, into uh, the discussion are less likely to be successful based on this reading and this and this concurring opinion. Now that's commentary. it's it's not part of the main opinion. So uh, it, it may or may not be uh, probative in, in, in another case that would come uh, before the court. But I think it's a good sign that the court is saying, if you're going to look 
at a, a constitutional right guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, then you have to look at what that meant at the time. It's a very originalist interpretation. That was the kind of interpretation that Justice Antonin Scalia was known for. Justice Thomas seems to have picked up that mantle and is carrying the originalist interpretation of the Constitution through in the decisions that are currently being released. And I personally think that's a good thing. Uh, I think that we need to look at what the founders meant and take their interpretation when we look at whether or not things should change. Does that mean things should change or not? I won't say here, uh, but we do have a method for doing that, and it should not be done through interpretation or by legislation. It must be done through amendment to the Constitution, and that seems to be the, the although not specifically stated anywhere in this decision that I saw, I think that is the approach that the court would much prefer happen if we're going to add some restrictions. I think it's also one that is very likely to fail. In fact, I certainly hope it does. Thanks very much for being a part of the show today. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station, 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk.